world peace, more than a punchline, our response to violence. Where do I begin? Justice, freedom, injustices, violence, equality, peace. We could be here a long, long time. But these concepts, words, ideas are certainly not interchangeable, but absolutely interconnected. We do live in an interdependent world. And as Kennedy said in the speech, that peace is the most important topic and the stage for genuine peace is based on justice, freedom, and the sum of many acts. Violence cannot, cannot plant, cannot create, plant, enhance, nor sustain peace. It is no magical shortcut. It's not a cut to the chase, getting rid of the bad guys, whoever we think the bad guys are, so that finally peace will break out. We've seen this strategy, unfortunately, over and over. The title of my sermon came to me as I was sitting on that front row a couple of weeks ago, and I was thinking about the movie Miss Congeniality, if y'all have seen it. It's uh, briefly with Sandra Bullock, and she plays an undercover FBI agent, uh, and she's a contestant in a beauty pageant because I find out some, something's going to happen in the beauty pageant. And so at the end, when they ask her what are her wishes for the world or her vision of the world, and she says, because she is an FBI agent, she says, well, tougher sentences for criminals, more restrictive gun laws, reducing recidivism, and, oh, yes, world peace. So this was on my mind as I was reflecting on the, on the board retreat that had just been held the previous two days. It had been fruitful and relevant experience for me, we took our mission statement, which is, we as a loving and caring spiritual community resolve to promote diversity through free expression of ideas and beliefs, encourage intellectual and spiritual growth, and provide an environment for social activism and community service. We believe the search for truth is a journey, not a destination. In this spirit, all are welcome. And with that, we established the top rank objective, which was, or as we, as the board saw it, to encourage intellectual and spiritual growth. So our focus, energy, worship, programming uh, can be informed by this, as well as it's a way to evaluate how we as a church are doing, if we're on the right path, if we've been challenged to stretch intellectually or spurred on uh, spiritually. Uh, during the same uh, retreat, we discussed strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats in regard to the church and determined that all souls has a unique opportunity as well as a charge to develop relevant responses to violence on a personal community national, uh, international level. This overarching commitment and focus can help us as well, it can help us as well as being the right thing to do. It can help us coalesce as a church and in part address the question of our identity, that question of what do we believe in and just who are we. We can become justice seekers 
peacemakers, negotiators, people who invest in the reconciliation, rebuilding, and restoration of the world. This looking for alternatives to violence is not meant to be a theoretical, high-minded, rhetorical exercise, but rather genuine attempts to comprehend the widespread, the widespread manifestation of violence, to devise steps, strategies, to take actions to meet them at a personal level, one-to-one, community level, national level. No start, no step is too small. As JFK noted in his speech, peace is the sum of many acts. And dealing with violence effectively is one or many of those many acts. I don't know if there, there is or could be a more pertinent or necessary or noble way to encourage intellectual and spiritual growth. As a congregation, how do we start? How do, we, how do we begin or continue the process of dealing with violence and helping to lay the foundation for peace? I will say that already uh, the church is doing it in some ways. The RE curriculum uh, has lessons regarding conflict resolution and anti-bullying uh, education. Also, uh, some of our members or a number of our members are active in the Alternatives to Violence Project. But what else can we do? I suggest we commit ourselves to the belief that study and dialogue are viable possibilities. We live in a culture that seems to have lost its confidence that study is a worthwhile activity and which honestly doubts that dialogue, debate, and discussion can bring us to the truth for which we long. Violence, at least in part, is because we've lost belief in our ability to attain some reasonable common ground or a larger truth together. Violence is the only resort when there's no trust in a shared search for options or truth. Violence is the language of the inarticulate. Dalkow, Darfur, Rwanda, Guantanamo, all symbols of the collapse of belief in the possibility of building a common human home through dialogue. Many of our problems and the continuation of distrust and schisms seem rooted in the fact that opinions are stated as truths, and worse than that, these opinions seem born of ignorance, fundamentalism, fear, and prejudice. Violence isn't courage. Rather, it's a force of fear, an admission of failure. We need to develop the practice, the discipline, the forums, the steely resolve to study and dialogue as part of our church's commitment to address violence and to create reasonable, realistic responses. Political and social transformation is, of course, necessary, but it isn't enough. There must be a spiritual force and resources to heal and rebuild, to have the will to stand up to violence and to offer nonviolent alternatives. Surely the pen is mightier than the sword. Part of the difficulty seems to be, at least for me, trying to comprehend 
violence, trying to, to wrap my brain around it. It's ubiquitous, relentless, seemingly inevitable. Or maybe the question is, is it inevitable? What is it? How common? What are its myriad forms? Is it based on fear, faith, or is it a fact of life? Are we trying? And in thinking about us as a church taking on, on violence, you know, are we trying to extinguish a raging forest fire with a garden hose? I mean, just who do we think we are? According to Webster, violence is intense or severe force, severe injurious treatment or action, unfair exercise of power or force, other things that we can find out about it is that violence is pervasive and epidemic. It can be physical, psychic, emotional. Essentially, it's a disconnection in the relational field. And this idea of a disconnection is very important because how you address it in almost every way is through connection and reconnection. But it's a disconnect of the relational that casts a spell upon another that may last a long, long time. If it bleeds, it leads. We have a strange fascination with violence. It has a seductive, even mesmerizing pull. If it doesn't get good press, it certainly gets plenty of press. It's first up on the news. It's part of breaking stories. It's the crawl under the news. It's the headlines. It's the sidebars. I don't know if y'all read the sidebars in the news, but just usually kind of the more bizarre, macabre sort of like snippets of violence, such as, you know, the headline might be, man loses his head in argument, and then come to find out he really was decapitated, that sort of sidebar. Uh, we see violence in movies, TV, song lyrics, cartoons, video games, etc. It's inescapable, often gratuitous, and most times incomprehensible. In our country, it seems that violence trumps cooperation, disruption trumps order, anger trumps reason. Violent, violence in its varying forms, according to Richard Brown, who's a leading historian on the subject, has accompanied virtually every stage and aspect of our national experience and is part of our underground or unacknowledged value structure. Repeated episodes of violence going back into our colonial past have imprinted upon our citizens a propensity to violence. So violence is a disconnect across the board between the act and the consequences between us and them between you and me, between image and reality. America has demonstrated a national predilection for war domestic and domestic violence long before 9-11 attacks. But over the years, we have cultivated a national self-image that's really a fallacy, and that is that America is a peace-loving, more moral nation than any, and we've typically embraced this uh, perception. So I won't get lost in it, in the details, but I'm just going to, to give a few facts 
uh, a glimpse of just how prevalent or how central war and violence have been in the evolution of the United States. Going back to the first Indian attack in 1622, this was followed by the, uh, the Percot War with New England, the, in New England, the King Philip's War, wars with Indians, imperial wars involving France, Spain, the Dutch, uh, 18 major insurrections, 40 riots, and this brings us up to 70, 1760. Then there was the Revolutionary War, the Second War with England, the War with Mexico, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, World War I and II, the Korean conflict, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, and our present war. My purpose here is not to write a Jeremiad. It's just to illuminate how commonplace war is and has been. And also to, to look at the, the chasm or the gulf between our illusion of being peace-loving with the preponderance of evidence that reveals us to be, unfortunately, a violent country. And why would this be important? I mean, it, it's to see that there, there could be um, a difference here, because part of this is to puncture denial. A psychological truth or maxim is nothing changes until we see it for what it is. Nothing changes until it is accepted for what it is. And there seems to be little genuine understanding about the centrality of violence in American life and history. The crime rate keeps going. The crime rate keeps rising, or so, or seems to, especially in senseless killings and wanton attacks. Fear of the darkened city streets has become a fact of urban life. The memory of bizarre murder, bizarre multiple murders, lingers in the mind. Thirteen people dead in Austin from a sniper's bullet. Eight nurses in Chicago killed by a demented drifter. The recollection of the Kennedy assassination remains part of the scene. A burgeoning, largely uncontrolled traffic in guns has put firearms into some 50 million American homes, many of their owners insisting that the weapons are needed for self-defense. In the movies and on television, murder and torture seem to be turning Americans into parlor sadists. A recent trend on the stage is the, is the theater of cruelty, and a growing number of books delve into the pornography of violence. This was taken from a Time Magazine article listed by, called Violence in America, the date July 28, 1967. Some things don't change much in 40 years. Violence is so universal and elusive that sociology, psychology, theology can only approximate a complex, its complex truth. From what seeds does it emerge? Is it innate? Are we hardwired to be violent? The very emphasis on the commandment, thou shalt not kill, indicates we've descended from an endlessly long chain of generations of murderers. How much is instinctual? How much is learned? How much is, is the product of society? Perhaps the violent man is not the natural man, but maybe the more socially alienated or disconnected man. Um, a historian named Lawrence Friedman spoke of the many forms of American violence, it coming from somewhere deep in our personality, and it cannot be accidental or genetic. 
he indicates maybe it's part of the price of liberty. He went on to say that violence in America comes in three main forms, mob violence, interpersonal violence, and war. Mob violence, uh, to those of us of a certain age in here, we can remember the civil rights marches, fire hoses, dogs, billy clubs, baseball bats taken against uh, individuals. In fact, that was uh, a, a Unitarian minister who was killed in, in the Selma riots. There were the Harlem riots, the Watts riots. There have been labor union riots. And group violence is viewed as a response to changing economic, political, social, cultural, religious conditions. So they, they estimate, and they feel like this is probably an underestimation, they estimate that probably two million people have been killed in group violence over the 300-year period. 750,000 Native Americans, about the same number, 750,000 African Americans, amongst others. As horrendous as this sounds, and it is horrendous, 20 million, no, excuse me, 2 million, it was too many that were killed, pales in comparison to the major form of American violence, which is in individual interpersonal violence, which is very frequent, very personal, very deadly. A study of the crime rates in the G7 countries, Canada, England, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United States, is that we did have the highest crime rate. And the conclusion, what is striking about the quantity of lethal violence in the United States is that it is a third world phenomena occurring in a first world country. These next statistics are, again, I'm not going to overload you with, with statistics, but these next two are, are pretty amazing. That uh, from 1900 to 1971, in those 71 years, 597,000 individuals were murdered, citizen to citizen. And from 1971 to 1997, the next 26 years, 593,000, 4,000 less in uh, 50 years less. So we've had over a million people that have been killed in the last century by each other. This is more than the Spanish-American War, World War I and II, Korean conflict, Vietnam War, Gulf Wars combined. And as much as there are the, the lethal uh, episodes of violence, the, the deaths associated with it, that doesn't cover the panorama. There's domestic violence, muggings, rapes, bullying in schools, threats of bodily harm, uh, the emotional abuse, humiliation, individuals being terrorized. So it's all around us, has been, and the question is, does it have to go on evermore? What can a congregation do? What can we do? What can any one of us do? What is it that we study in dialogue? As I wrote for the newsletter after the Virginia Tech killing, is that we needed to look for helpers, that we could become the helpers. In part, it seems to me that if there is any rationale for such a tragic, horrific thing, then it must be that we learn something, that some meaning must be made from the murder and mayhem, 
These seem to be serious, significant times, and maybe we are at a crossroads. I'm afraid our souls are being numbed and corroded by not just the witnessing of physical violent acts, but also all forms of violence, whether words from Imus, Coulter, or any agents provocateur. I propose that all souls, that our church, our community, purposefully and deliberately address issues of hate and violence. I understand this is not an algebra that has certain right answers to be found, but I do believe in the act of coming together and committing ourselves to the dialogue, to searching for steps to take, to introducing small solutions here and there, and looking for alternatives to violence, then some things may slowly change. It won't alter the past, but maybe we can become more enlightened, bettered, and impact at least our small part of the world. In this, healing might occur and help rendered. We need to be more open to understanding risk factors at a personal level, community level, national level, so that we have some choices of where to intervene. What we do know is there are any number of risk factors. The American culture itself seems to be a risk factor. We are entertained and fascinated by violence, as we talked about earlier. Inadequate schools, domestic and child abuse, mass media, we are bombarded by realistic, glorified, and glorified, rewarded, and slow-motion images of violence, where, in fact, crime does often pay if you have the bigger gun. Graphic lyrics and songs, video games, easy availability of guns, all these are possible levels to intervene in terms of violence. Maybe we start with examining our own attitudes toward violence as well as attitudes toward the possibilities of peace. The reading that I did from Martin Luther King, we must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. We must do some soul searching, each of us, because all of us or each of us have probably been victims of, witness to, or perpetrators of violence. There is still evil in the world, and the evil resides in us. We are capable of this, and so it is important that we become more conscious. Hannah Arndt coined the phrase, the banality of evil. This came after she went back to Israel to see the the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was evidently instrumental in putting millions of Jews to death in the concentration camps. She came away with this surprise. She said, he was no devil. He looked no different than you or me. We know that some of the men who devised and administered Auschwitz had been taught to read Shakespeare and Gutha and continued to do so as the killings went on. So we each need to dedicate ourselves to developing developing consciousness of our own propensity to violence, of seeing or using violence as a solution. Violence, no matter how justified it seems to be, is the surest way to create more violence. We are called on to examine our beliefs, to examine our attitudes about violence, about peace, about justice. I read a quote by Errol Flynn, who was before my time. I mean, I'm getting older, but anyway, he's the swashbuckling actor. 
he was evidently asked, what's the correct way to hold a sword? And he replied, imagine holding a bird rather than a sword. If you hold too tightly, the bird dies and its life is lost. If you hold too loosely, the bird escapes and you have nothing. And so it is with swords and birds and life. If we hold our beliefs or attention too tightly, too rigidly, then differences are seen as irreconcilable and can lead to violence of the fundamental way, of it's my way or the highway. If held too loosely, relationships suffer, we become indifferent, and the violence of nothing matters can happen. One of the best recipes for violence is the I-it split. And this is opposed to the I-thou, where we understand that each of us has something in this. This is I thou is empathy. The I it split is, is just the opposite. And that is if I view my position as right and just and true, then anyone who's different becomes the other. They become it and can be seen as invalid and illegitimate and then can justifiably eliminate, be eliminated by any means necessary. Thomas Merton, the Trappist poet, priest, pacifist, philosopher, noted that oppression is founded upon the premise of the irreversibility of evil, which means that once something is deemed as evil, bad, sick, or wrong, it will always be that way. If we accept this premise, then we are morally obligated to eliminate it. And you can fill in the blanks of the number of groups that have needed to be eliminated. One of the beauties in the JFK speech that I've read part of, I mean, he was a master at this, but in the, in the meat of the, of the speech, he encouraged Americans, quote, not to fall into the trap of seeing only a distorted and desperate view of the other side. He went on to say, no government or social system is so evil that its people must be considered lacking in virtue. As Americans, we find communism profoundly repugnant, but we can still hail the Russian people for their many achievements in science and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture, and in acts of courage. He put a human face on the Russians. And I will say that five months, unfortunately five months after this speech was given, he was assassinated himself, but prior to that, the Test Ban Treaty had been signed. We can commit ourselves to nonviolence as a guiding principle for action. This shouldn't be mistaken for ineffectual passivity or feckless sentimentality, but rather an attitude of problem solving, of looking for common interests, common ground, believing that what unites us is greater than what divides us. Gandhi called the force of nonviolence satya, satyagrafa, or something like that, which means firmness of soul or heart or truth. In the end, violence itself is passive behavior. That is, it is the height of non-problem solving behavior. What else can we as a church, as individuals, do to help stem the epidemic of violence in order to set the stage for peace? In addition to study, dialogue, and working toward relational competence. Because violent prevention requires education, collaboration, commitment. One of the leading predictors 
of people who will commit violence and those who will become incarcerated is illiteracy. So as a church, maybe we can do more to teach, to offer space and sponsors and mentors for literacy. In addition, we might commit ourselves to becoming more familiar with, even adept at conflict resolution skills, and then offer to teach them to others in the medical model of see one, do one, teach one. Another thing emerged as I was researching for this talk on violence, justice, peace, one of the references I used were speeches or the acceptance words of individuals uh, receiving the, the Nobel Peace Prize for a number of years. And one of the things that came up over and over was that there will not be peace as long as people are hungry, as long as they are starving. And in our country, the Department of Agriculture released figures that 35 million Americans do not have enough food. 12 million of these are children. America's Second Harvest, which is a consortium of emergency food organizations, says that 25 million people sought help in 2006. This is unconscionable. We can do more. We can dedicate ourselves to doing something practical and substantive in addition to our food barrel maybe in joining an alliance of churches to establish a food kitchen or something in that order. Uh, Maybe also to have people willing to do research on the existing charities that target hunger and ascertain which are worthy of our donations, but certainly to address hunger. There are numerous points of entry, venues to pursue in our study, Dialogue Action, As we talked before, media, gun control, the mental health system, amongst others. Gandhi, again, a few months before his assassination, talking about peace is a dangerous business. As I was telling Barbara, the people whose quotes I read the most were Martin Luther King, Lincoln, Kennedy, Gandhi. Each of them were assassinated. When Gandhi gave his grandson a talisman with what he called the seven blunders, and Gandhi believed that violence emerged out of these blunders, and these seven blunders are wealth without work, pleasure without conscience, knowledge without character, commerce without morality, science without humanism, worship without sacrifice, politics without principles. And he considered these to be passive violence from which which was the feeding ground for violence and that as long as any of these go on, there really can be no peace. So these would certainly seem fertile areas to explore. We do have members in the church that are active in the AVP, in the Alternatives to Violence Program. Our RE classes are hip to this and are dealing with anti-bullying education as well as conflict resolution uh, teachings. Kennedy said, man can be as big as he wants, 
and we are not helpless or hopeless. We can make a difference in dealing with violence, preventing violence, one person at a time, one day at a time. And this is part of the peacemaking process, which is a never-ending process. It is a way of solving problems and that we as a church can participate in. In JFK's words in his speech that we need to persevere, define goals clearly, be practical, it's evolutionary, not dramatic. I believe that we can take on violence as a church and do some things that will add up over time. It's a worthy project. It's a worthy calling. It will require all the intellect and spiritual force we can muster. We can defy history and fuel hope and be really part of building world peace. It is indeed a hard work miracle. If there is to be peace in the world, there must be peace in the nations. If there is to be peace in the nations, there must be peace in the cities. If there is to be peace in the cities, there must be peace between neighbors. If there is to be peace between neighbors, there must be peace in the home. If there is to be peace in the home, there must be peace in the heart. Thank you.